Hello, and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 83. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hey there. Today we'll be discussing the 17th episode of season 4, Constellation of Doubt. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Constellation of Doubt. John watches an intercepted transmission from Earth that shows how Earth is reacting to the alien visitation, while Sokozu and Pilot try to find any reference to the secret base from last episode. As John spirals, the crew tries to help, but doesn't really know how. So this is an episode that doesn't have much of a plot. On Moya is basically the search for Aaron going badly. Uh, they can't find anyone who's heard of Katrazzi, no matter how many people they ask. But what's brilliant about this episode is that they fill in the space of this rather boring and badly going search with everyone watching themselves on TV. And I love this concept. So we have basically a history channel type documentary about the alien visitors and how people on Earth are reacting. So they have clips from Bobby's recording of everybody, like 240 hours worth, I think the host says at the beginning. And then they have all these experts giving commentary on these on this like candid footage of the aliens. So it's a really terrific outsider's point of view on our crew. And it's kind of a final capstone to the Earth episodes that I think really does fill in a lot of what felt like it was missing in Terra Firma. Yeah, I definitely agree. This episode felt, I liked this episode a lot more than I think I liked Terra Firma, <laughs> which is so funny because you're right, it's relatively plotless. But at the same time, I enjoyed seeing what other people were thinking of Earth. Or mm. I enjoyed thinking what other people were thinking of the aliens. <laughs> And uh, at the same time, I think this is one of those things that when they're talking about you, you get more defensive than mm -hmm. when it's just like, oh, World War Two, you know, like very far away, have no, you know, <laughs> I have no stake in this. Because John kind of starts off the episode, we, we start off with John kind of saying they hate you, you know, kind of being like there's, you know. Earth isn't ready. They hate us. And and at the same time, yeah, there are people that are kind of hesitant about the aliens. But overall, the more I was watching, the more I was kind of like, no, this seems about right. You know, some mm -hmm. the military is going to be really hesitant because essentially they've, you know, in between Dargo and Aaron, they've essentially said Earth would be wiped out in a matter of minutes. Like you guys have no defenses. And Sokozu has pointed out that we can't even get our own intraspecies conflicts you know, <laughs> solved. Yeah. So the idea of like conquering aliens that are, you know, that much more powerful than us is absurd. At the same time, the kind of sociologists and everybody else are kind of more along the lines of like, hey, this is pretty cool. If we if if we can get over our own issues, we might fit into a larger interstellar society. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the balance of people because I think you're right. It did feel like a really good mix of of what people would react with. Like you have the people who are completely anti and like, this is terrible. And then the people who are much more like, yay, aliens. And, you know, it reminded me a lot of, you know, Contact and mm -hmm. those kinds of science fiction stories that really deal with, you know, what is the reaction? How does Earth change because of this kind of of alien arrival changing our paradigm of how how everything works right yeah i think arrival is another really good one yeah you know, 
where you have kind of like the balance of people that, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe the louder people are going to be the ones that are scared and the more dangerous people are going to be the ones that are scared. But you also have a good mix of people that are just in awe, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So let's kind of kind of give a flavor of what this interview interview style is like i don't know if we ever get a name for the host i can't remember it if he told us he probably told us he tells us at the beginning but i just ended up calling him (laughs) jerk (laughs) monroe monroe that's i can't remember his first name but i wrote down anyway um so i'm going to play the first clip which is monroe the host interviewing aaron about whether the peacekeepers will attack earth and it kind of gives you a flavor of the tone of this show and how the host is treating it. Earth is under no threat from the peacekeepers. But you said... Look, if, if you were to make a pact with an enemy, then perhaps. So, the possibility exists that your people one day would attack. Why are you so determined to twist this into something it's not? Because, Officer Son... You are an admitted soldier in what is to us an alien army. You look human, indistinguishable to the naked eye. How are we to know that there aren't thousands of your people roaming our planet, preparing our destruction? Surely John Crichton has explained this to you all already. Well, we need to hear it from you. Hear what? That Earth is sacrosanct? That your perfect isolation can somehow be restored? Is that it? Look, from what I know of the peacekeepers, and of anyone else for that matter, they couldn't care less about this planet. You're not a threat. Technologically speaking, you're not even a potential ally. So, if someone wanted to enslave you, if they wanted to destroy you, could it be done? Well, quite simply, yes. The reason you have not seen that interview before is because it was held back after requests from both our own government and the United Nations Secretary General. So just a side note, this is going to be interesting to do commentary on commentary for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But what I wanted to get out of that, because this is one of the early um, interviews of the TV show that we see in the episode, and it's about the threat of the peacekeepers or other aliens to Earth. And obviously... The interviewer and Earth, as pride by proxy, is very concerned about aliens attacking. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a major theme of any kind of science fiction we have. But there's a couple things there. You, like, you see him as a hostile interviewer towards her. Like, she asks, why are you twisting my words around? Mm-hmm. And there's, I think there's two sides of it. Yes, it's a, he's being very hostile, really wanting to get at this question, but also not willing to be to let her kind of whitewash the threat and you see at the end that she comes around and says yes they absolutely could take you over they don't care at the moment because they don't know you exist and i don't know it's just this interesting dichotomy between we as the viewers being on moya's crew's side or on aaron's side Mm -hmm. or at least that was my feeling of oh he's being so mean to her and trying to make everything worse than it is but as a citizen of earth just like the reporter should be asking that question. That is actually his job to try and get an actual answer out of her that doesn't sound like it's coming from a government mouthpiece, you know? 
Yeah, I like that perspective because I think that this question kind of, this is the first clip we see really. And so for me, that kind of set up this whole ep- this whole kind of documentary is like, oh, he's already against the aliens. But when you do point out that like, yeah, if I was a citizen of Earth when <laughs> aliens came, I mean, I am obviously a citizen of Earth. <laughs> if, if I was here when aliens came and then the interviewer let her get away with like, hey, people don't really care about you right now, you know, and not like, yes, you guys would be wiped out very easily and enslaved. Then, yeah, that that is the reporter's job is to kind of actually get a yes or no answer to like, does Earth have any chance? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the, his whole kind of paranoid, like, there could be thousands of you here already. I'm like, that's <laughs> not how the peacekeepers take over planets. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that but that also speaks to another ingrained science fiction fear. I mean, we have those stories of the aliens among us kind of mm-hmm. deal, right? I mean, even on the humorous side with like Coneheads and Third Rock from the Sun and everything, it's like alien infiltration. But I can't think of any hostile ones because it's not my favorite trope, so I tend to avoid them. (laughs) (laughs) But that kind of fear of, like, who can you trust around Mm us? And remember, this is 2003. Again, this is very much in the context of the post-9-11 war. This was brought up in terra firma of, Mm -hmm. like, who can you trust amongst us, especially when the enemy could look just like you? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I wanted to play another clip which is where it's kind of a follow-up to the last one. And it's where they're using clips from all the other crew members to try and make this point that Earth not only is unprepared, but Earth could be taken over. I've seen lots of your movies and every film. The aliens are always evil and Earth always is victorious. You mean we have to learn there are good aliens? No. I mean, you have to learn you won't always win. This is a watershed moment in human history, the equivalent of a huge meteor smashing Earth during dinosaur times. Will we bend under the sudden weight of it or respond and flourish? You can't even fully accept us. And we're the nice aliens. You know, what about some of the next ones that come down through the wormhole? My biggest fear exacerbated in part by these tapes is that the fabric of our society may come under an assault it is not yet prepared to withstand the political complications that may arise from a simple wormhole floating in your atmosphere will devastate a planet that is still in the throes of intraspecies chaos i'm particularly concerned with the effects of another alien visitation on society in general Since they've left, there's been a 700% increase in panic and anxiety attacks. If Earth is remembered at all, it will most likely be for the quality of its manual labor. So the background music is the music from the TV show. I just want to point that out. And they're doing this, this like clip from Bobby's tapes and then cut to the talking head, like experts in sociology and psychology (laughs) and and other things. And the two at the beginning are the enthusiastic ones who are like, this is a watershed moment. Are we going to rise to the challenge? And then you have the psychologist being like, everyone's committing suicide. This is terrible. So that's kind of the spectrum of the commentators we have. There's several others that get added in as we continue on. But like getting into what they're actually talking about, I think one of my favorites is Dargo's at the beginning talking about our own science fiction movies and 
mm-hmm. one immediately jumped to mind was Independence Day, mm-hmm. which I don't think had been made at this point. No, oh, it yeah. had been. No, it was yeah, it like, had been. It was late nineties. <laughs> okay, gosh darn it. So anyway, yes, sorry, I can't remember when things get made. But anyway, Independence Day, aliens come, we defeat the aliens. And Dargo's like, you know, you're probably going to lose in that scenario. <laughs> and that's what you got to learn. And I really like that. I mean, we have obviously the occupation stories too, where mm-hmm. we did lose. Of the, all the comments, that's the one that really kind of hit me the most. Mm-hmm. It's weird doing commentary on commentary. Yeah, I I think that Dargo throughout this whole episode is really, again, showing the Dargo that we like. Like, there's this... Dargo throughout this whole episode, he's just very level-headed. He's very honest. He apparently was on Conan, which is hilarious. (laughs) And then, like, later in the episode, Bobby has been bugging him about his tongue thing. Yeah. Where he's like... Dargo's like, and which, and this actually explains a question that I hadn't known I had, but it's like, uh-huh. it's like one of those Zan questions of like, how do her potions work on everything? Naranti, I'm like, her potions work on everything because number one, she experiments first. And then number two, she literally doesn't care if she kills everything. Right. <laughs> you know, like, whoops, my sleeping potion accidentally killed everybody. Anyway, <laughs> so Dargo's apparently his tongue, it actually is adaptive. So it senses like as soon as the creature is out cold and then it stops pumping venom, which Mm -hmm. is like, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then to Bobby has been bugging him and bugging him about his (laughs) tongue. And then later on, Dargo's like, okay, fine, I'll do it. But like, you have to not tell anybody. And and Bobby's like, oh, sure. Okay. I'm not recording anymore, but he's still recording. And then Dargo like tongue snapped like tongues him <laughs> and then he calls Naranti he's like uh Naranti oh, I might have regretted what I've done here but yeah <laughs> yeah and it's it's one of those moments where it's just like Dargo kind of being playful and giving in to Bobby who's 13 years old and a kid and just kind of going with it but yeah Dargo is very much the one representing the military might of aliens because mm-hmm. he shows Bobby his ship and he shows the recording of them killing the Leviathan in uh, Dog with Two Bones the one that was trying to kill Moya so you have all these commentators talking about the military might of the aliens and being like one of them is like, yeah, the I think it's the general who says like, mm-hmm. yeah, their military might is astounding. We have no defenses about it. He might be right about that. And then you have the psychologist being like, that's an act of terror to tell us that we have no no defenses against this. It's meant to intimidate us and scare us. When with Dargo, it's just like, hey, these are the facts. Sometimes the truth mm-hmm. is like so overwhelming that yes, it's scary, but at the same time, you know, it's that whole point with the the journalist or Monroe being the journalist at the beginning with Aaron of being like, you know, would you rather know or would you rather not know? Would you rather just mm-hmm. the government know or should the people know too? And I think there's that, that tension of what does the government know that they're not telling us versus what do the citizens have a right to know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the tension throughout the episode, the episode of the sh- actual, sh- the episode within the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's something that Monroe, the host, keeps calling out. Like the government tried to suppress these tapes and the government, you know, didn't let us air this interview that we did six months ago and they don't want you to know this stuff. So so mm-hmm. there's there's that tension right there in the episode within the episode. Yeah. And I think the other point to make about Dargo here is that for him, not only is this just a fact, but it's also something that's happened to his own species. And his species was considerably more technologically advanced. Mm-hmm. I think later on he makes a reference to the fact that like Earth reminds him of his own homeworld 10,000 years ago. Yeah. So I think that for him it's just kind of like – 
you guys have no defenses and you're not making any move to get defenses. Instead, you're kind of just this chaotic place, which is fun. Like he, you know, he kind of points it out as like, you know, it reminds him in a good way of his own home world 10,000 cycles ago. But at the same time, I think it's very, for Dargo, it's like a little more intimate, you know? Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I hadn't as picked up on that as much like that, you know, the contact with the peacekeepers and other species really changed his world. And as we know right now, the Luxon homeworld are, the Luxons are complete allies with the peacekeepers. So the peacekeepers have a lot of sway in uh, Luxon politics. Mm-hmm. And also, the, and also he knows very intimately that the peacekeepers will simply take them over and yeah. do whatever they want. You yeah. Know? Which is, yeah. I think, something he keeps trying to get across in a very kind way. And yet, no one really seems to be able to hear that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, they're all more concerned with the power that he's showing right then of just his little dinky ship that he found in a junkyard, basically, mm-hmm. you know, which is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I want to point out is that I'm like 100% this psychologist would have been like her <laughs> her association would have like discredited her and everything like that. Because like whenever people go on TV and they're like, I am psychoanalyzing people on TV <laughs> without actually having examined them. I'm like, mm, no, no legitimate yeah. psychologist is going to do that. Yeah, because one of the next clips, I didn't grab this one because it was kind of short, was talking about how much John has changed. And so Bobby has this little interview with John where John basically says, you know, I I miss the people and I Mm -hmm. miss the, you know, toilet paper. But also he has this feeling of like something is going to happen and nothing does. And he has to remind himself that that's normal. And then that's when the armchair psychologist or, you know, she might be just a TV psychologist at that point, you know, someone who actually isn't in academia any longer because of this sort of thing Uh, where she's like PTSD or she says something slightly different. But basically he has PTSD, must have been under lots of stress, which, yeah, kind of. (laughs) Yeah. So this interviewer who seems to be obsessed with this like aliens among us thing asks Aaron about like marriage and procreation among different species. And she tells him essentially like, oh, yeah, like everybody does marriage and everybody does like, you know, where it's biologically available. They do coupling and stuff like that. Right. And Aaron's point is that, you know, there's more similarities between people of different planets and species than there are differences trying to like be like, hey, we're all the same here. Mm hmm. And the host kind of takes it as like, so technically you could have a baby with John Crichton, which seems a little bit National Enquirer. (laughs) And she kind of hesitates for a really long time. And then she plays it off as like, well, I was just kind of trying to puzzle through the the biology of it. But if it's biologically possible, yes, we could. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so here's kind of the reaction to that. And then and then we get a little bit more commentary and then some more reactions about who John and Aaron are to each other. Was Officer Sun's hesitation at my question an honest moment of introspection? Or was it something more? These are now the issues we grapple with. How much to trust? How open do we allow ourselves to become? Do we view an alien commingling of our gene pool as a favorable step towards integration into a larger community or as a threat? Well, one can only hope. 
that a union between those of earth and elsewhere is possible. Such marriages will foster bonds of family and generate trust between disparate peoples. If you thought children of race-mixed parents took abuse at the hands of other children, wait until one is born with tentacles. Seriously now, what is the big deal? Firstly, I do not believe Erin's pregnant with John's baby. And secondly, if she was... Am I gonna get in trouble for taping this? Well, not of the physical kind, no. You gonna be okay? Yeah, I'm gonna be fine. I'm just never gonna be the same. Aaron. Stop that. Remember when you tried to hide that crush on Jill? Stop it. Steiner, her name was Steiner. What's my towel? Your lips. When you see Aaron, they soften just a bit. She has a word for us. It's called yesterday. Yeah, right. She have a towel? Yeah. What is it? Her eyes. She's waiting for you. So that last little bit was Bobby recording John and his sister Olivia in the maintenance bay on Moya. And he's hiding from them so that he won't get caught because it's a private conversation. But I want to include it not just for the discussion of that we see of the of the Earth experts about, you know, whether or not it's a good idea to have interspecies babies, but really for John and his sister, because mm-hmm. we didn't spend a whole lot of time with them on terra firma, but they have this really, really close bond. And I really just love how she knows him, you know, like even mm-hmm. though he is so changed from being gone and even though he's got PTSD and he's come back with all these weird alien things and carrying a weapon and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, there's still a fundamental part of John that his sister knows to his bones about how much he likes Aaron and mm-hmm. how much Aaron likes him and just be able to read him and talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I really like there's an intimacy in that, you know, Mm -hmm. that I think was something we were missing a lot in terra firma, you know, just of like those kind of conversations, you know, the kinds of conversations of like, hey, I still know you, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we we did get a little bit of, there was a scene between the two of them in terra firma that I don't think we talked about, and Mm -hmm. they ended up talking about how much John misses their mom. And at the end of the episode, I think we did mention, but Olivia gives their mother's wedding ring to John to give to Aaron, basically mm-hmm. saying, go marry that girl, which, you know, <laughs> legit. <laughs> yeah. And earlier in the episode, they'd kind of revealed that they had Bobby come on the show and Bobby essentially said, we're giving you all of this tape because we want the people of Earth to stop being so afraid of the aliens. Like we want them to see the aliens the way that we did. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm kind of like, why didn't y'all edit what you were giving them? You know, (laughs) because this is like one of those moments where I was like, this seems like something John would not want public. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, there there should be a little bit more editorial control. And also, side note, while we're talking about Bobby, this is the episode where they retcon that he is John's nephew instead of cousin, and that his mom is John's older sister. So John is the middle child with mm-hmm. an older sister who's Bobby's mom, and then Olivia, who's younger. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to talk about here is we have to remember that terra firma, and so all of these tapes came right in the middle of the Aaron trying to get back with John, John trying not to get back with Aaron. So like, that's why the waiting thing is so painful, I think, for John, because he's watching these having lost Aaron. 
Mm -hmm. know, he's watching these with like Aaron somewhere else and missing. And so for him, that just just be like a really cold slap in the face. Like she was waiting for you for months and Mm -hmm. you were giving her nothing. (laughs) And they had just gotten back together, basically, end of Twice Shy. And then remember, at the beginning of Mental as Anything is the last time they saw each other in person when they were Mm -hmm. sitting in Pilot's Den before he had to go off with the boys and before she went off to the dead Leviathan where the thing with Greza went down. And so it's been a while since they've been together and they haven't had that much time to reforge their connection to each other. I mean, it's there. But, you know, it's that that whole first blush of being with somebody again, kind of, because it's, they've made up. Mm-hmm. And he's lost her and lost her in a completely devastating way because they have no idea where she is. Yeah. So I want to move back to the Moya plot for a little bit because while John is watching this television show, so the TV was a gift from Aaron and the pilot intercepted the signal through the wormhole from Earth, people keep coming and visiting him. And we see Dargo is one of the first ones who comes in and says, why are you watching that? And Dargo hasn't seen the show. And he tries to distract John by saying, hey, watch your football game. And John's like, I've seen it. It's a terrible game. Put mm-hmm. my show back on. This is where the first time that John's like, I know the name Katrazzi, or one of the first times. He might have said it to Sukozu, who's the one doing the searching because she speaks Scaran. And so he's like, has this niggling thing in his head, like, I know the word Katrazzi. Dargo, you've heard the word Katrazzi. Where do I know it from? And he can't mm-hmm. think of where he knows it from. And that's kind of the, the thread that holds the Moya plot together. But then you have this other kind of commentary of, so we have Earth reacting to the aliens, and now we have the aliens reacting to Earth reacting to the aliens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the next one I want to play is when Chiana comes by. And this is really touching. I don't know. The visuals for it are really touching because Chiana is on one side of the door and Jar- John is on the other, but she holds his hand through the door, basically. And they're watching the show happen, Aaron on the show, while they're standing there. Politics. I, for one, like the idea that we're not alone. So why not go all the way, become part of the cultural fabric of the new world in which we live? If they're in love, they're in love. You know this word, Katrantse. No. That wasn't a question. You heard it with me. Only from Sakasa. No. With me. No. Under the tree? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Bobby. Is there one for me? Bobby. No, actually, um, yours is so big that it wouldn't fit under the tree. Cool. Because I got you one, too. When do you give up? I don't. I was just thinking about you. Well, you got to give up sometime. No, I don't. Hey, and Olivia, can you shoot me and Aaron together? Actually, I was just thinking about shooting you. I'm like the coolest kid in school because of you guys. Oh, I'm sure you were pretty cool before. Okay, I was about to make some... Where do we find her? We find her. You go by Durrath? Not without Aaron. When you're born into military service the way I was, it's deemed best to not have any ties to anyone but your unit. No brothers or sisters, aunts or uncles? No. 
didn't you miss that? Only once I was exposed to it. They don't like you there. They don't like any of us. Footage you're about to see is simply intended as... You watch too much TV. ...to fuel the discussions that will ultimately decide the direction we take as a species. So yeah, there's kind of a lot going on there. But I really like this quiet conversation between Chiana and John where he's like, you've heard it. She's like, no, I haven't. And then, you know, the whole discussion of giving up and and Chiana's wondering, when does he give up? And he's like, I'm not. Never. We're going to find her. You know, Mm -hmm. he has a non-answer for how do we find her? He just says we find her. And I think that says a lot about John's attitude throughout the whole you know, hope is what drives him. That's been a central mm-hmm. theme of John's character from the very beginning. And that's all he has holding on, all that he has to hold on to right now is they're searching for Aaron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing about that quote with Chiana is that it kind of, it reflects this kind of time passage that's also happened because Sokozu kind of does it, but we aren't really sure how how much she's just being like oh my god i've been searching forever and how much she actually has been searching forever Mm -hmm. and i think with the fact that chiana's like okay well if we don't find her what are you gonna do you know and chiana's kind of trying to prepare him because i i think they have been searching for a really long time you Mm -hmm. know like you know later on even pilot is kind of willing to give up it's it does reflect that this isn't Chiana kind of asking theoreticals here. She's mm-hmm. literally asking him, what are you going to do? Yeah. And a little bit earlier in the episode, Chiana had found Sokozu on command, where Sokozu was supposedly still calming people and trying to find out if anyone had heard of this place. And Sokozu is just sitting there on the table because she's done. She has exhausted every single contact that she could think of, random people, people she knows. I mean, at one early conversation with John, he's like, are you asking the right people? And she's like, I'm asking everybody. You know, and there's, it has been an exhaustive search. And mm-hmm. Shiana is very much not ready to give up either at that point. So we've seen a shift from, from her earlier in the episode where she's like, okay, I'll keep looking. Even mm-hmm. though she doesn't have, she knows even fewer people in Scarin space than, than Sukozu does. And then here she is saying, look, when are you going to give up? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not evilly meant or meanly meant or anything like that. But it's kind of the reality that they're coming up against. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing to point out about that is that Sokozu kind of points this out of like, hey, one of the reasons the Scarens are really good at, you know, maintaining their complete control over this entire section of space is because they don't tell people where their secret bases <laughs> are. And and it kind of points out that so much of the Moyes crew success has been based on luck, you know? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it was complete luck that they found the gamut base to save Aaron. It was mm-hmm. complete luck that they knew where Jothy was heading because of they had tried to rob the bank an episode <laughs> previous. You yeah. know, all of these things were due to like complete luck. Mm-hmm. And now their luck has run out. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of luck. I mean, I guess they had the heading for the gamut base from the Marauder, but their meeting the Marauder was luck. You know, that those sorts of chains of events. But yeah, so it's kind of like wrong place, wrong time a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But here this like, there's no place. They're, you're just stuck in space and Aaron is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And the other thing about watching this clip or listening to this clip again. So they're, they're watching the television program 
while they're standing there. And, you know, I wonder how much of John obsessively watching this TV show is because Aaron is in it and he can see her in the show, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the way he feels like he can be close to her or the crutch that he needs to the crutch that he needs to have to kind of keep himself going. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of Dargo's um, video of Lolan, his like picture of Lolan. Mm-hmm. Because I think you're right. There's no pictures. There's no nothing of Aaron. There's no audio recordings or anything of Aaron except for this. And we see that later on a little bit when he starts fast forwarding through the commentary just to get to the moments of Aaron. Mm-hmm. Like he repeatedly rewinds to that pause that she yeah. has in when she's being asked if she could have John's kid. You know, he he watches that like three or four times, you know, yeah. just kind of with the knowledge in his own stomach that she's carrying his child you know Mm -hmm. and there's something interesting that happens in a couple of those moments too is we get Aaron turning to the camera and talking to John and saying like Katrazzi it is the Sierran base where they've taken me or something like that along those lines where he's clearly having a hallucinatory moment where she on the screen is telling him where she is. And basically, sub, you know, the subtext is come and get me. You've heard this word Katrachi before. Don't give up on me. Yeah. And that happens in two or three instances. I can't remember the exact phrasing. Yeah, I think it's something along the lines of like, Katrachi must be a secret scare in base because they wouldn't have taken Greza anywhere less secure or mm-hmm. something along those lines of like, you're not going to find this unless you figure out how you've heard the word Katrazzi before. Right. So <laughs> we get a familiar face in the documentary. <laughs> it's the poor sheriff that we abandoned oh my gosh. in the 80s. <laughs> and he is on the show. Okay, sheriff. Suppose you start by telling us what happened down in Florida back in 1985. They were here. All of them. Mm. Ears, tentacles, share. Share? Share. And this one, their leader. We're all aware of the trouble among us, attention seekers and outright criminals who've attempted to fabricate stories and cash in on this alien visitation. In the sheriff's defense, way back in 1985, he filed a report with the FBI, giving what we now realize are fairly accurate descriptions of General Dargo, Laurenti, Officer Sun, and Domina Reichel. The files remain sealed, and no one in government will speak of their contents on the record. Can you tell us what you remember of that time, Sheriff? First, they kidnapped our astronaut, the young Crichton. Then they sabotaged our space shuttle program. They set it back. They grounded us. Next came the truly most insidious part, and that was installing tiny microchips in each of our brains. Oh. But that keeps the signals out. And uh, what do you think the signals are telling us? Eat fatty foods (laughs) and it's kind of funny throughout this interview so what he holds up 
as a baseball cap lined with tinfoil that he wears, <laughs> apparently. And you could kind of see Monroe, the interviewer, kind of start backtracking at this point because the next thing he asked him is is something along the lines of, you've been locked up in institutions for the last 18 years, haven't you? And he's like, yeah, for most of it, kind of undermining his credibility nearly immediately as soon as the tin hat comes out. <laughs> I just, Poor yeah. sheriff. <laughs> I, I feel really bad for the sheriff, but I also am like... I understand if you had people willing to talk off the record that were like, oh, yeah, he gave very accurate descriptions of the aliens in the 80s. But then at the same time, I'm like, he's literally like, they're going to come take us over because we're all too fat to fight back. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't know why you even put this on the air because it just kind of discredits you. You know what I mean? Oh, and like, and he says, and their leader, and for their leader, he holds up a pumpkin that he's carved in the shape of Rigel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or is it the was it the pumpkin that Rigel carved or that wouldn't have survived or Thanksgiving? Yeah, probably not. But it is a withered old uh, old pumpkin anyway. But it's it's I don't know. It's a little bit of levity and a call back to Kansas that they haven't forgotten the sheriff, the poor sheriff who got so screwed around by the drugs that Norianti gave him. You know, I know, right? <laughs> if only she'd had an extra minute just to be like, forget, forget. I know. So yeah. So that's that's the sheriff. And I love the descriptions that he have ears and tentacles and share <laughs> for Aaron dressed up in that 70s outfit. And when he brings up the fatty foods part of it, uh, we've just watched a clip of Rigel eating like fatty foods and sugar and being like, this is the best thing ever. So uh, we've talked a lot about Dargo already. And I guess the other few people featured are Noranti and Gianna and Rigel. So Rigel is obsessed with food and he thinks the servants are slaves. And so he's really happy that he has, you know, he'd love to have slaves continue on. And Bobby, who is recording all this, is kind of horrified. I love Bobby being like, they're not your slaves. You understand they're not your slaves, right? They get paid. And Rigel's like what and he's so (laughs) offended and then they actually have like somebody from the government be like hey listen i know he's kind of offensive but he was dominar of 16 billion people so he must have been doing something right yeah yeah and uh rigel has also discovered gambling and sex phone lines and he's really happy about all that And so there's like lots of horrified commentary about that. So that kind of ties in with the sheriff's interview about, you know, fatty foods being in the the path to vice to take over the the human race. (laughs) Norianti's section comes earlier in the episode. We're just doing these out of order. Um, And she opens on making rat poison. And uh, she talks to Bobby about, you know, is, is poison for the rats to use on other people. Um, And she apparently gone to South America and, (laughs) and had like a diplomatic incident where they called her a witch because she cured some blind blind boy and then you have this like shadowy government commentator who's all in shadow so you can't see his face is like yeah we don't know what happened there but it was mysterious (laughs) (laughs) and then you have like the the professor who was essentially like hey listen most of her miracles have not been undone and nobody's Mm -hmm. been able to figure out why she you know and nobody's been able to figure out how she did them so why aren't we just calling them what they are? Miracles. She's an alien. Right. Like, why can't yeah. she perform that? 
Right. And it's Clark's law, right? It's like any advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the point that they're making with Noranti is that she's got all this medicinal knowledge and healing knowledge and all this stuff from her, however many hundreds of cycles of existence in other parts of the universe where she's learned from every planet she's gone to. So just because the humans can't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that her whole section for me kind of reinforces this interesting thing that's been happening, which is that on Moya, they kind of see her as the crazy old coot grandma. But the reality is that she's been traveling for a considerable amount of time and she has this extensive knowledge. Like she's able to make potions out of nothing. You Mm -hmm. know, she's able to pull these things out of thin air. And it's really when she's studying the earth religions and she kind of points out, she's like, hey, all of your religions or I I don't think she means all of them because, again, like Buddhism you know, the boot, they have the Buddhist on afterwards. And he's like, there's no killing that's acceptable. But, you know, she kind of points out that like all, a lot of earth religions are hypocritical because Mm -hmm. they all, you know, have killing in them the same. And so (laughs) all of the religious talking heads that they have on talking about her get really offended. (laughs) Yeah. But she makes an interesting point because, because Bobby asks, like, that's not true. You know, doesn't religion cause wars in your areas too? And, and, or in outer space too. And she's like, not the religions. And, but it's the religious followers that do. Mm -hmm. So she's basically saying it's no different out there. There are still these kinds of conflicts over religious ideals that happen out in outer space. There's, there's no paradise out or heaven out in uh, the rest of the galaxy. It's Mm -hmm. everybody is, is kind of still the same, you know, everyone has their belief systems and they're going to fight for them hypocritical or not. Mm hmm. So yeah. I think that was a really interesting point because it kind of goes back to Aaron's point in her interview, uh, one of her interviews where, hey, there's more similarities between different species than there are differences. Mm-hmm. But I think what's interesting about the difference there is that where Aaron was trying to be like, hey, there's more similarities and differences. You don't need to be afraid of us. And Naranti is like being similar to us in this way of having of, you know, your religion, your religious followers being willing to kill each other. She's like, that's not something to be proud of. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And so then you also have Chiana, and she has a few interesting moments where, number one, she's like painting makeup like all over her face, and she's trying to figure out like why they have so many colors and also why they're so wasteful, which Mm -hmm. is interesting to me because it seems actually incredibly, incredibly Nabari to have everything in their society be really functional and to have everything in their society be kind of utilitarian. And so when she's faced, she like points out, she's like, I've been in houses that have two toilets, two showers, a bathtub, two sinks. And she's like, how many places do you guys need water to come out of? And then she points out like, you can, you can bathe in this, in the toilet. And Bobby gets really grossed out by that. (laughs) And I'm like, Chiana, come on. Like that was a little extreme. Well, you, you, but they don't have water necessarily in the toilets on Moya. I mean, they're probably Mm -hmm. more like airplane toilets where they're just like using vacuum to suck it out into space. So yeah, it's like this different of functionality of different, of different Mm -hmm. appliances, ways of doing things. I mean, Honestly, people over the world on Earth have different ways of using a toilet because they're all coming mm-hmm. in all sorts of shapes and sizes. And I could definitely see that being a point. And obviously, it's played for humor, but you know, it's the point is that that there's different ways of approaching these different problems. And she's pointing out 
some of the excesses that humans have that is kind of agreed upon by some of the experts who are common commentating on it. Like I, one of, I think it's the Buddhist is like, yes, it is wasteful. And then there's a, a Stanford professor who's like, you know, if you actually listen to what she's saying, she actually does have a very consistent worldview about how things work or should work that just because she's an alien doesn't mean that it's coming out of nowhere. Like there's an internal consistency to it. And I think that guy is played by Brian Henson, by the way. Ah, Yay, Brian yeah. Henson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then later she has this another another point where she's dancing. She's dancing around. She's listening to music and she's dancing around. And she asks Bobby, like, what do you think of sex? And he says, well, I haven't had it yet. I'm 13 and it's illegal. And then she's like, well, if it's illegal, why are all these 13-year-old girls dressing up like that? And she's like, mm-hmm. clearly somebody wants them to have sex. And he's like... And, you know, and all of the talking heads are like, how can we let our young people be corrupted like this? And blah, 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 blah. And I'm kind of like, and at the same time, there are others that are kind of like, yes, this is fairly accurate, you know? (laughs) Right. And I mean, that's, I feel like that's been a longstanding talking point in earth discussions, cultural discussions about, you know, the sexualization of girls and all that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And with the simultaneous Puritan notions in the United States of you must not ever learn anything about sex, lest you think anything about sex, despite your biology thinking about sex all the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So the hypocrisy is being pointed out through Chiana there. And she gets really rough treatment from, from the commentators. Like even the nice ones are like, um, she's clearly troubled. This is a troubled young woman. This is someone who is, is got a, you know, passionate, but rough background. So it's very much the slut shaming kind of condescension that's going on. Mm-hmm. Which she doesn't really deserve because no. I'm kind of like, you know, it's accurate that America is this incredibly consumerist culture where we like over-sexualize young girls specifically, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at what's happening to those poor Stranger Things kids, you know, where like they can't do a lot of independent press because people are crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think you have a couple scenes back on Moya of Chiana watching this portrayal of her and the commentary on it. And I don't know, I, I think she's hiding it. But she has this conversation with Rigel where she's like, you know, I feel sorry for John that he can't go back. And Rigel's kind of like, they hate us. And she's like ignoring kind of their comments on her but at the same time you know she has mentioned also to john you know they don't like us on earth and that's that whole whole they see us one way and it's always in the worst light yeah yeah and it feels very much kind of like our initial impressions of chiana but then because we know her more, we've gotten a much more nuanced view. And so I think that their perspective of her kind of goes back to our initial impressions mm-hmm. of her. I mean, but that said, you still kind of get the slut shaming from people like Sukozu and Rigel mm-hmm. in universe of being like, you're too promiscuous or that's a bad thing that you're promiscuous. I mean, that was even her trait that got t- taken away and mm-hmm. twice shy. Um, so, well, and then also yeah. the 13 years old thing. Yeah, we know that. I mean, we know that Nabari are longer lived than humans because most aliens are. But at the same time, it makes me wonder at what age they are sexually active, or mm-hmm. what age they're allowed to be sexually active. Because to her, thirteen, you know, seems not like an appropriate age. It seems like, oh yeah, why why aren't you having sex at thirteen? Yeah, 
And we know Dargo had sex at like eight. Yeah. So yeah, so the standards amongst alien species are different just because of their different life cycles. Mm -hmm. So getting back to Katrazzi, the search has been exhausted. Pilot is given up. Sukozu is given up. And Sukozu comes to tell John. And this is kind of where he, uh, this conversation. um, And then afterwards, he kind of has his breakthrough of where he heard Katrazzi from. But first, um, I want to play this conversation with Sukozu because it really gets at the heart of John at this, in this episode. We cannot find Aaron. We cannot locate this Katrazzi. No one has even heard the name. I've heard it. You have heard it. Someone said no, it on I this ship. I heard it on the planet when we left Erin. What the- are you not telling me? I'm telling you everything. You're lying. You're not telling me. You know that. I have you, know. Not- you-, you have been nothing but lying from the moment you got on board the I ship. I do not Sputnik. know. And I will not let Erin die. Katrassi. It is not my providence if she lives Katrassi. It is not my fault if she lives Listen to yourself! Everything lives and everything dies! Whether you wish it to or not, and you have to deal with it! It's the you have to deal with it at the end that gets me every time because she's like, look, everything lives, everything dies. It's not my fault, it's not my will, it's not my role to play arbiter of uh arbiter of who lives and who dies, but it happens anyway. And if Aaron dies, you're going to have to face up to it and deal with it. And that is something he has not been doing this entire episode pretty much since she disappeared. You mm-hmm. know, he's been like, we're going to find her. I'm not giving up. There's there's no alternative to finding her. And I just think it's a really emotional, powerful statement on Sokozu's part to to basically be the one to, to, to tell him that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it also kind of gets at this thing this the common in tv thing but also just the common in the farscape universe thing which is that they're always able to solve the problem they're always able to find Aaron. they're always able to save everybody you know it's the everybody lives thing you know from Mm -hmm. doctor who except because you know farscape is actually an ensemble drama and not just like a two-person drama it's this idea that he's never really had to deal before with the idea of somebody dying with the exception of Zan, you know, and, and Aaron, he lost Aaron too. Yeah. But then she came back pretty much immediately. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like no, within I, I 24 know. hours, <laughs> but there was, you know, that whole grieving process that went through that point too. No, but I, I take your point. I think it's a good point. Yeah. And, and so I think that her point is valid here of like, this is, we've been doing this for so long that even pilot who loves Aaron so much is willing to give up Mm -hmm. you know you need to figure out what you're going to do yeah yeah but going back to your point about oh hey the problem gets solved so he's been yelling (laughs) katrazzi at her and then something the on the television screen there's an image of sukozu in the kitchen um, and she's got a plate and he she holds it up and it covers half her face. And then it all kind of clicks together for John about where he heard Katrazzi before. Because everyone else thinks he's crazy about having heard it before, but he's not. And he sees her face and he flashes back to an unrealized reality from Unrealized Reality, the episode, mm-hmm. where he was on that moya where everyone was mixed up and Sokozu was stark. And when uh, Aaron, who was in Chiana's, 
a costume or dressed up as Chiana, that merch, died. She crossed over, and a part of that crossover was Tsukozu Stark saying Katrazi, amongst lots of other nonsense words. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to pilot and he wants to take the wormhole back to Earth for some reason. We aren't, we as viewers aren't 100% yet what he's going to be doing. He has to talk Dargo into it because Dargo is captain, as we all remember. And mm-hmm. pilot reminds him that Moya is not going anywhere near another wormhole. <laughs> she is now phobic of wormholes. She is done with wormholes. Can't blame her. Yeah. <laughs> like, poor Moya. And so then he goes and he talks to Scorpius and I want to play that because this is the this is the John that's tired and the Scorpius that's manipulative. <laughs> you set me up. Not that I care. I don't care about much. you care about peacekeepers rule the scarens scarens rule the peacekeepers let them roll together put your ass in a cage i care about one thing actually have a question mm-hmm. he starts out this little monologue by saying you set me up and i'm not sure what that means what do you think it means i was a little bit puzzled by that also but i'm thinking he just means that in terms of scorpius being there at all has meant that they're much more intimately connected to the scarens than they were before in the sense that like with Scorpius there, the Scarens have been pushed and pushed and pushed as a threat to the point where now they are a threat, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? And okay. at least that's kind of how I ended up taking it because I don't think this whole thing with Aaron would have gone down if Scorpius hadn't been there, if that makes sense. Because okay. then Greza wouldn't have, you know, come after him as as hard and you know, then they wouldn't have even been interested in what happened between the two of them. And I think that's kind of also what he's getting at there when he's like, I don't care who wins. Because mm-hmm. his whole thing is, I just don't want any of them to have wormholes. But he's like, I don't care who wins. You care who wins. And you being here means that, you know, we have to have this conversation. 
Right. Okay. So because Scorpius has inserted himself so directly into their lives by saving Aaron, by coming on board, by using them for his amnesty, mm-hmm. you know, he has painted an even bigger target on their backs from the Scarin threat as much because John has wormholes as because they have Scorpius with them. Yeah, I think I so. I could see that. Yeah, because I was just a little bit puzzled by that because Scorpius has been passive this whole episode. This is the first time we've seen him on screen. I guess I couldn't quite make that connection to to where where he was coming from with the setting up. But I think that makes a lot of sense the way you put it. Yeah, I mean, that it is a little bit of a stretch. I think that they could have chosen a language that was a little clearer there. <laughs> but on the other yeah. hand, John is like a little bit stressed out. So <laughs> you have to give him we'll give credit. Him that. Yeah. 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 I do like that also this is where all the chips are down for John because mm-hmm. remember in Twice Shy when he was in revealing to Aaron that, you know, Scorpius wants to know what I care about and I only care about you. He can't know that. But here he's like, okay, the only thing I care about is Aaron. And he's telling Scorpius that directly. So it's this reversal because the situation is so dire that he is willing to go to any lengths, even telling Scorpius what matters to him so that he can get Aaron back. And I think it's really telling how stressed and how f- desperate John is about it. Yeah, yeah. This was his explicit fear from John Quixote and then also later from the Spider episode. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so that's where the episode ends. John is going to go do something in a wormhole. He's taking Scorpio with him. And mm-hmm. I have to point out here that this whole scene, John is like monologuing at Scorpius, and Scorpius is laying on that table, bed, bed I call it cot. Like, yeah, it's something. <laughs> it looks really uncomfortable. It looks very Scorpius, but it looks very uncomfortable. Because even though Scorpius has the run of the ship, he still prefers to stay in his cell. <laughs> yeah. He made it home. <laughs> so Scorpius is just laying down the whole time. And Scorpius says nothing, doesn't get up, doesn't eat, barely even looks at him. And then in the end, his expression is kind of more, it's not even satisfied, really. It's just kind mm-hmm. of like curious is yeah. the kind of the language when I would label it. Serious and considering. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's no triumph with Scorpius at all. You know, yeah. this is new information. He's processing. He's thinking about it. Yeah, because he has to wonder. I mean, last time John promised to give him wormhole information, he blew up Scorpius's ship. <laughs> so what exactly is John planning this time? There is that, right? There is that. So that's the episode. What would you give it? I really liked this one, even though it was kind of a non-plotty episode. I would go like a four, but that's just because I love outsider point of view episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you on it. I think it's a four for sure. It's just, I really just love seeing the Earth reaction. I mean, that's that's the fun part about a crossover type or, or uh, cultural encounters type of situation like this, where we know one side very intimately, Moya crew. We also know the other side very intimately, Earth, because that mm-hmm. is, in fact, the planet that the audience and us sit on. So there's this whole set of resonances that you get with it that I think is really satisfying. Yeah, yeah. So what do we have next week? Next week, we have prayer, which is also very good. So join us for that. Yeah, we'll see you next week. We are Farscape Friday podcast at Tumblr, Dreamwith, and at gmail.com. And we are Farscape Friday on Twitter. So please hit us up in any of those locations. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.